This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to the Reverend Alice Connor about her new book, Fierce, Women of the Bible and Their Stories of Violence, Mercy, Bravery, Wisdom, Sex, and Salvation. Alice, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so glad we're getting a chance to do this. I, I wonder I wonder if we could begin by having you tell us about yourself. Yes, yes. Um, so I was, I was thinking about what I should say about that. I could tell you all about my uh, grad school and all that kind of stuff. But I think I want to tell you that I am uh, a one on the Enneagram for those who listen and enjoy that sort of thing. Uh, and I'm... You might say I'm the onest of the ones. Um, I have um, a lot of anger uh, within me that um, is a it's a it's a it's a cover um, for all the other feelings I experience. And maybe uh, so I, I say this out loud because um, this time that we're living in right now is so bizarre. Um, and I think it seems like to me when I talk to people like directly or when I see stuff on the news. Um, Maybe it's anger, but maybe it's other kinds of coping mechanisms that people are having. We may not realize how much um, the way we're responding to things is is hiding even from ourselves what we're really feeling. Um, I feel angry because I'm sad and because I'm scared, you know? Um, and this is like so not in my bio <laughs> for the book. Uh, or, or for anything. Um, but it, but it's, it is so, um, core to who I am. Um, the sense of, um, being able to see the world as it could be, um, the world, the possibilities of the world and to be so sad and frustrated that it's not better. (laughs) Um, certainly the downside of that, uh, is thinking that I'm right, uh, which I, I, I don't necessarily want to go into that space. Um, but just this sense of like, things could be different. It could be so beautiful and they're not, or parts of it are not. And I want it to be better. Um, so maybe this is a little insight into, um, kind of why I've written the books that I have and why I do the work that I do. Um, is definitely an attempt to be curious about myself and to, to kind of release some of that anger and really go into the feelings and into seeing the world as it can be. 
and helping other people see their world as it can be. Um, yeah, I think I think that's who I am. <laughs> well, thank you for telling us that. That's <laughs> that's an amazing uh, introduction. Uh, I pre- it was very vulnerable and honest, and, uh, and and so is the book. So uh, it, it's it's a wonderful um, way to open, and a thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, which leads to the next question, which is, what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it does have something to do with that feeling that um, things could be different. Um, just a quick side note: the, the the second book I wrote had a human. Um, I have a chapter that's called "How You Are Is Not Inevitable." Actually, no, there isn't a chapter called that. I think that's the conclusion. Anyway, this this is a phrase that I use with my students. How you are is not inevitable. Um, that that the way things are in the world uh, right now or just in general, the way things are in your heart, the way that we respond to things doesn't have to be the way things are. We have some choice. Um, may not be a great choice necessarily, but but there's always a choice. And... And so I wrote Fierce because I was, as I said, I'm angry. <laughs> I was frustrated that so many stories um, about women from women's perspectives seem to have been forgotten. Um, I talk about this in the introduction a bit, but sort of the sense that um, there, there's all these amazing stories, some of which are kind of between the lines, as it were, but some of which are, are very much text. And we don't read them in church. We don't know them. Um, and and that seems like a huge loss to me. Um, not only because the stories themselves are super great, but because we have this sort of assumption um, that that sort of the the men's stories are universal, but the women's stories are just specific to women. Um, it's, it's sort of you know, the way we talk about like, the Declaration of Independence, right? Um, when we refer to all men, you know, theoretically that means all people. It's a generic, but it's the masculine generic. Why could we not have easily said all women and have that refer to everyone, right? There, there's a loss that happens when we don't um, when we don't remember the stories when we don't tell them. Um, and I just I got I just got really frustrated by that. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to hear those stories. And and when I went out to read books about women in the Bible, you know, no, well maybe a little shade being thrown here. I didn't like any of the ones that were on the market. Um, they just didn't speak to me. Um, they many of them were talking about being a better wife and mother. And and I am those things. I say this all the time on podcasts and to people like I am a wife and mother, and I can so do better at being those things but also I'm other things and I'm a whole human being. And I would love for my, my church, for my faith to reflect that in the words and stories that we tell. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's why I wrote it. Um, the, like the, the practical side of it is I kind of fell into it. I wasn't necessarily intending to write a book. Um, and uh Tony Jones, who's written a number of books, is an acquisition editor for my publisher, and fill in the blank, some some boring uh, technical stuff happened, and uh, and I ended up being able to have a conversation with him, and he was like, well, I want you to pitch this. So I was like, oh, great. I was not expecting that. 
but here we are. And, and it seems as though based on the, the reception and I guess the sales that there's lots of people who feel the same way, who have wanted a more fulsome and complex and even, I mean, at times R rated, uh, acknowledging the R ratedness of our lives, uh, perspective on these women's stories. Yeah. And you describe yourself that way in the acknowledgments uh, mm-hmm. as this reluctant author. You open yeah. by saying, I never thought I'd write a book. And then you, instead of you know thanking people, you said, here's the people you can blame for how fierce <laughs> became a reality. And you begin with your parents. Um, so, uh, and it was an interesting reason for blaming them. You said they encouraged you to argue and to see arguments yeah. from other people's sides and to have compassion. And then elsewhere in the book, you say that one of your parents was an Episcopal priest Mm -hmm. and that you became an Episcopal priest. Mm -hmm. Was perhaps some of the beginning of Fierce those early uh, arguments at the dinner table? Absolutely. Absolutely. I I sort of came to the realization uh, a few years ago that I, I view argument, not necessarily yelling argument, right, but like sort of a, a civil disagreement, even with loud voices, that's okay. But to me, argument is a, is a gift, it's a form of love. Um, the realization I had was that I see it that way. Like I see it sort of the curiosity of that as a gift to someone else to try to understand each other better, but other people don't necessarily see it that way. Uh, other people experience it as maybe a little aggressive and scary. Um, which is too bad really, because, uh, for me, sort of the the idea of curiosity, of trying to learn more, of trying to understand where somebody else is coming from, why they feel so strongly about something, um, is is so important. And and like I, I talk about it kind of under the heading of argument, but but curiosity really is is the the word that I'm using now. Um, and I think that's what my parents helped instill in me in those dinner table conversations is curiosity about what they're saying, you know, try, trying to, to be on the same page to understand what they're saying to me, but also curiosity directed towards myself. What do I actually think about this? Why am I saying it that way? Um, or or uh, kind of emotionally, what what is going on inside me? Um, and I like that word curiosity so much because it's not judgmental. It's not how dare you think this or Ugh, why? It's help me understand this more. Um, help me, help me understand what you're saying, uh, so that I can see you as uh, a real person. Um, and that, I, that feels so important to me. And, and yeah, I think that absolutely led me, uh, among other places <laughs> to the priesthood. Um, because that is, I think that curiosity is so much at the center of what I do on a day-to-day basis with college students, with people in my church. Uh, with anti-racism work, with these books. Um, yeah, it's, I think I was already kind of in that space, but thank you for that question. Cause I think it kind of pushed me into that saying that out loud. <laughs> that is, that is the center. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Yeah. Um, in the opening of the book, you say we adult women have a hard time telling our own stories and off air right before we started taping, you and I went through that briefly where I said, I never yeah. introduce my guests. I ask every guest who comes on, and so far they've all been female, 
uh, I am on the gender channel, although men has a, have a gender too. And I try to remember to care that men have a gender. Um, and, uh, but, but I want women to tell their own story in the, instead of having me introduce them. And that philosophy also started affecting you long before I met you when you were writing this book, because you, you wrote it because women have a hard time telling their stories and they have a hard time finding models of women's yes. stories. You, you say in the book, we don't read or talk about women in the Bible much in church and the yep. Bible itself tends to skate right over them anyway. Yep. Um, and that's profound because if you look at the pews, it's female. Mm-hmm. And as a historian, uh, I know that that's, that's a, a long, long, long trend yeah. that there have been more women in, in the pews than, than men. Um, and yet, and, and now we have many women in the priesthood and, and you say um, that part of why the, the, the Sunday uh, readings don't cover these, the women's stories is that it works mm-hmm. on this three-year lectionary plan that's been in place forever. And that hasn't been revised since women started uh, joining the priesthood in appreciable numbers. Um, And so you set out to look at these stories and you ended up becoming a detective of sorts. You say in many places in the book, you know, this is an interpretation. Yes. This is my reading, my wondering, my curiosity. This is an interpretation. And one, one story that you offer that I want to hear more about is about Ashira. How do you pronounce that? Asherah, yes. Asherah. So as I uh, mentioned to you earlier, I'm a lifelong Episcopalian, never heard of this person. And was you in the back of the book, for listeners to know, um, Alice gives uh, exactly where in, in a Bible you can find all of the, uh, the people that she's talking about. Yeah. You can look at them in a number of different sections in the Bible. It's surprising how people I've never heard of are covered in multiple books. And Alice yeah. will tell you exactly where uh, you can find them. And Asherah is one such person who is mentioned in multiple places in the Bible and is never mm-hmm. talked about right. in the lectionary, uh, in the sermons. And so will you tell us um, about this part of the feminine divine? Yeah, so Asherah is one of my favorite, um, you might call her a non-entity. She's not a non-entity, she's there. Um, but she's been kind of erased, which is, uh, or poorly erased, uh, which is kind of the point of that chapter. Um so Asherah was um, an ancient Mesopotamian goddess. Um, like a lot of them, she was a goddess of fertility uh, and that sort of thing. And um, in those ancient cultures, she was uh, the consort or the wife of El, El, um, who is sort of the the Ur god. This sounds kind of weird, uh, I think, to a lot of people who have grown up in the church. But El is the god that Yahweh is based on. That makes it sound like Yahweh is fiction, and I don't mean it that way. It's just that that um, these cultures were so close to each other, and they had different words uh, for the same experience that they were having. Um, so, so Asherah um, was this sort of feminine divine, feminine goddess who um, was associated with El, and then eventually with Yahweh, sometimes with Baal kind of depends on which part of scripture you're looking at. Um, but essentially what happened is um, 
many of the cultures in the ancient Near East had um, what you would call a, a polytheistic uh, experience for quite some time, um, the idea of multiple gods. Um, and then sort of on their way to monotheism, as the cultures grew and developed and moved into the idea of just one God, they went through a, a phase called henotheism, which is, again, sort of simplified here, but uh, is basically there are still multiple gods, but ours is the best one. Ours is sort of the, the one in charge. Um, and so that's kind of when we, uh, when we join our heroes in the Hebrew scripture, uh, they are in the space where they're moving from henotheism into monotheism. So that's why you get things like uh, the creation narratives. You get God referring to we. Uh, they will become like us. Who is us? Uh, it's because there's this sort of divine counsel. Um, and then, you know, a little bit moving on a little bit farther when you're dealing with the, the prophets and you're talking about sort of the exile and that whole era um, you're, you're hearing a lot about how Israel was worshiping all these other foreign gods and how terrible that was. And Asherah is one of those, Asherah and Baal. Um, sometimes, not super often you hear, you see her referred to by name, uh, like as a person. More often you see her name being used for these sacred poles that were, um, a way that people were used to kind of doing their worship, right? Like in, in modern churches, we have a church building and an altar and all that kind of stuff, right? They, at the time they would have had um, sort of altars that were essentially kind of stacked rocks or they might've had some really fancy carved stone altars, that sort of thing. But they would also have sacred groves of trees and poles uh, of some kind that were uh, set up in honor of gods. When you read those um, stories, particularly when you're looking in, say, the prophets or um, I think it's Kings and uh, Chronicles, I don't have the book right in front of me, but I think that's right. Um, when you see those and you see it referred to the poles, and some translations will actually say uh, taking down the Asherahs, that's her. They're, they're talking about um, not just moving a little bit away from henotheism, but like like shoving it away, shoving away all these previous gods and saying, no, not only are they, uh, not only are they lesser gods, they're just not real. We shouldn't have been worshiping them. Um, and, and I do, I should say, I say in the chapter, I'm not advocating and bringing her up, uh, that we should be worshiping her again. I'm not advocating for the ways in which people worshiped her. Um, she was part of an era in which child sacrifice was a thing. I'm not saying we should do that. But she is such a good representation, such a good uh, image for all the ways in which humans erase the stories that we don't like or that we're embarrassed by um, or that put us in a bad light. Uh, it's sort of a gaslighting kind of scenario. Um, not just we shouldn't have, but, but it even goes into, oh, we never worshipped her in the first place. Well, we we did. <laughs> and it's not helpful to, to say that that didn't happen. Um, and actually, as I'm saying this out loud, it kind of is reminding me of the, the conversation that we're having, sort of the public conversation we're having right now about statues of um, Confederate heroes uh, that were put up during the Jim Crow era and that are being taken down. I am glad that they're being taken down. Um, but it's interesting because so much of the conversation is about, oh, we're erasing history. We're not erasing history 
in the same way that the ancient Israelites weren't really, they couldn't really erase history in taking down the poles of Asherah. Um, it was still there, right? Um, the, the stories are still there. The history is still there. It's a question of what are you putting up a statue for? You know, um, you know, the, these, the statues that we put up of Confederate heroes, um, were put up not during or, or immediately post-Civil War. They were put up in the Jim Crow era as a form of intimidation. And that's not what we need to be remembering. Does that make sense? Well, you, you talk quite a bit about the difference between erasing something and hiding something. Yeah. And, and feeling brave enough or vulnerable enough to say something. Uh, and, and I think that's kind of what we're touching on here as well. If a statue is taken down of a Confederate um, hero, yeah. the history is not erased. The statue right. has been removed from a public place. So right. it's, it's kind of those differences of meanings between yeah. erasing, hiding, celebrating, uh-huh. um, making a hero uh, versus... Um, acknowledging yeah. a, a human contribution to a part of history and what the outcome was. And that may or may not be a heroic outcome. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I was, as you were saying that I was thinking about the, I, I talk about the origin of, of the word genocide in Turkey and, and that the country of Turkey still refuses to use that word um, for uh, and of course now we're talking about erasure and I've completely forgotten the, the name of the, the, massacred oh my gosh how embarrassing i'll come up with it later and i'll say it out loud and it'll be really awkward (laughs) um but they they massacred this huge number of people and then they refused to to acknowledge it like they literally still in 2020 refused to acknowledge that this thing happened uh or that the people that they murdered uh were innocent they were um it was it was a racial genocide and um and sort of yeah, what, why are, what is it you're hiding? Um, I mean, I, I can see what you're hiding, but, but why are you hiding? Like, again, it's that curiosity, right? Can we, as a, as a culture, are we, is it possible as a nation or a culture to express curiosity about the things that we hide? Um, I, I, I think that's, in a lot of ways, that's what's going on in the current iteration of protests and rallies in support of Black Lives is, to a, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, and and sometimes certainly to a very angry uh, and physical extent, we need to be curious as a culture about how we got here. Not just, well, I didn't do it. I didn't own slaves. I don't ever say the N-word. Okay, fair. Good. I'm glad. Also, <laughs> there's more to it than that. Can we be curious about that? Can we sit with that pain? Um, and I think that's a lot about what what Asherah is about is sort of an attempt to hide things that we don't want to sit with or examine. Um, and yeah. you t- you talk about that uh, in on page sixty one, um, and and I'm going to read a, a little passage here, which yeah. I don't normally do, but it shows the complexity of the things that you're grappling with with each of these women, both 
in what is said and in what, what isn't said and why what's missing is missing and how it's not a black and white binary of good, yeah. bad, evil. Um, it's very complex. And so on page 61, you say, for me, considering Asherah isn't about rediscovering some ancient, perfect, matriarchal society that the evil right. men destroyed. That didn't ever exist. And I'm not advocating for reintroducing a pagan, maybe not so pagan, goddess back into our everyday worship. I'm saying that her absence represents all that we excise because it's difficult. Yes. And specifically, all that we excise because it's female. And you go on to say, and Asherah's erasure makes me ask what else we've hidden and why. Yeah. And I think um, that's a theme throughout the book. Uh, I think it's a theme throughout human history. And in podcast after podcast, uh, I'm struck by how the things we grapple with uh, in whether it's an ancient text or an ancient scripture or um a document from more recent history and what we're grappling with now um, Mm. has such great similarities that um, every guest I have on is also uh, weaving in the current headlines to their answers because it's all the same human stuff that we still haven't figured out. It's the hope that you opened with in your personality. Like you see the possibilities Mm -hmm. of this beauty and then you see how we've um, how we've fallen short. And, and you talk about, um, if, if it's okay to jump ahead to what you've yeah. been writing about, about song of songs in, in another chapter, you, in that one, you say the Bible is all about violence and strong language and adult situations. It's not for the faint of heart because our right. lives are not for the faint of heart, right. which is a theme here that we've been, we've been going on, uh, for a few minutes here. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I had asked you if we could talk about Song of Psalms is that Song of Songs is that you said the narrator of that is the only woman in scripture who tells us her own story. Yeah. So I can't skip her. No. <laughs> this is the gender show. <laughs> Can you tell us about Song of Songs and the narrator? And uh, what did you figure out in your detective work about her? You're very nuanced in your writing. So I know you don't want to come down on here is the exact history. Right. Uh, but, but what would you like to tell us? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't know a whole lot about uh, who actually wrote it. Um, like a lot of wisdom literature, there's a lot of folks who say, oh, like Solomon wrote it. Um, and of course, some folks may know it as Song of Solomon. Uh, the implication is that uh, he is the bridegroom in that uh, in that book, uh, and actually, in research for Queen of Sheba for my current book, uh, there's a lot of suggestion that she might the Queen of Sheba is the the woman. Maybe sure, I'm I'm just just like I'm happy to say sure. Maybe Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Great. How does that change it? <laughs> I don't know that it does, uh, because really, what that book is about is, as you're saying, is it is such a personal work. Uh, it is so, so much about her experience of love and sex and loss. Um, and it's, it cracks me up. Like there's a whole, um, theology that's called bridal mysticism that, uh, you see really clearly in a lot of, um, evangelical worship songs. Um, there's, gosh, there's one, here's the line. It's like 
earth meets sky in a sloppy wet kiss cracks me up every time I hear it. Uh, and I don't listen to a lot of uh, evangelical worship songs. I'm just saying it comes up every now and again. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> um, it's kind of embarrassing. Like some of this language that we use for our relationship with God is really sexy. Uh, and really, I, I talk about Jesus as my boyfriend, right? It's that kind of, of language. Um, and it's, I, I, as an Episcopalian, I find that deeply embarrassing. But also, it's a huge part of a lot of the history of the church and the way we talk about God. How do you talk about love when there are so many ways to love? And I'm not going to go into the the various Greek terminology. Uh, you know, you can look those up yourselves. But like, we all know even in English, there's lots of different ways to love each other. How do we talk about that? Is our relationship with God sort of purely cerebral? Is it... Is it just sort of a, a relationship with like a sibling or a parent? No. Sometimes our experience of the divine is ecstatic and and orgasmic. Um, maybe not necessarily literally, but like that experience of, of really being in the presence of God is so overwhelming. Why wouldn't we talk about it in this metaphor of something that most of us experience in our lives, this sort of the romantic and sexual love, um, which is so fascinating that there's a whole book written this way um, and that it's in a woman's voice. Um, that obviously, other women speak in scripture, not nearly as much as men do, but they, they do speak. Some of them have quite long stories, um, but they're all still told through Again, I think some people would would take issue and say, "Well, you say it's through a man's voice; it's a gender neutral voice that is is doing scripture." I'm like, I, it's not, because men are the ones who wrote the stories down, and men are the ones who translated them. Um, it's just not. Um, and to be fair, that same thing can be said about her story, except that what we have received is from her voice. She's the one telling us, um, and that's. So I, I wanted to say empowering. Maybe that's a maybe that's a dumb word to use. <laughs> um, it 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 gives me hope, um, and it makes me giggle. Like that, this is the story that is told from from the woman's perspective. Um, like she goes to a place where the the male narrators don't. Um, why is that? I don't know. <laughs> um, but I love her so much. I love her honesty. I love her um, just sort of unembarrassed descriptions of her life and her fear and her being turned on and her searching for her lover. Um, it's, it's delightful. And when you read it, you'll go, Oh yeah, I see why we don't read this in church. <laughs> this is a little uncomfortable. Although they do allow it as a selection for a, the wedding. Um, for a wedding, yes. But also yeah. one of the more... Uh, right I don't in front say of it. your grandma and your grandpa and right. everybody who loves you sitting there like, okay. Yeah, but but you're not reading. You'll you'll notice you're you're reading the part that's uh, that's that's beautiful, but is is more about the love than it is about the sex. Because um, there's literally a passage where she's talking about masturbating. Um, and then she goes to the door with her hands still wet. It's like, whoa, what? Like, this is this is in here? 
And you're not going to read that at a wedding. I mean, you somebody said there's could. Also, you said there's also a passage where she talks about how well endowed he is. Yes. Yes. That's also not in the wedding liturgy. Also not in the wedding liturgy. <laughs> Which is, again, it's, it's just, and, and I mean, similarly, we're, we're not necessarily going to delve into that one today, but um, Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel also talks about, like specifically about how well endowed uh, Israel's lovers are. Um, and, and that's why she goes after them. Uh, so again, not read in church. Um, you know, I, I would love to see a church service where somebody did read those passages and then talk about them. Today's we make sermon, of the Bible. Yes. Would people come or would it be the empty church? I don't know. We don't advertise our sermon titles at my church, so... <laughs> They would show up and go, whoa, it would be a shock, I think. But like, but I mean, why not? It's a good shock, though. I have to say I did once in a sermon uh, use the word pornography as the as I was just making a point about something else. Um, And I got some pushback. uh, Sort of, well, now I have to explain to my kids what pornography is. I'm like, well, there are ways to do that that are age appropriate. But. All right. (laughs) You know. How do, how do we deal with difficult things in sermons and in church? Like both, both difficult subject matter that's happening in the world around us, but also the difficult subject matter of scripture. Like, do we gloss over it again? Are we, are we doing an Asherah thing where we hide it because we're embarrassed or it makes us uncomfortable or, or whatever? Or do we put it out in the open and say, yep, this is a thing. Let's deal with it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And you talk about that as you talk about the different women that you cover in each chapter, you you talk you talk about the difficulty of talking about their sexuality. That euphemisms are used. That she covered her feet, his uncovered his feet, and you're saying, no, that's not the body part that she uncovered. Right. Um, and you have women who are who are bathing, and you you really question um, where was the man putting himself on purpose so that he could watch mm-hmm. women bathing? Um, and you you really question just all of it, the, the geography that had to be involved, the physicality, uh, the intentionality. And yeah. you say again and again, this is really about the honesty of the stories. And yet somehow we're uncomfortable yeah. with the honesty. And you say um, in this chapter of Song and Songs, you say the Bible is all R-rated, you know, wide swaths of it aren't translated because the Hebrew or Greek is too coarse. Yep. And yep. so when you were in seminary learning this, you got the down and dirty. But when you're in the pulpit, there's a different yeah. version that you're meant to say. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a there's a famous story. Um, uh, and I've suddenly forgotten his first name. So it's so a, a good friend of mine who who I used to work with uh, in campus ministry, Bart Campolo. His dad is sort of a, a famous big tent evangelical preacher 
Um, and, uh, and he, at one point at some, I wish I could remember where it was, uh, details of the story escaped me, but he was, he was at a big worship service, uh, and he, he got up to preach and he said something along, along the lines of, you know, last night, uh, statistics tell us last night, uh, like 300 children in America starved to death. And I think that's bullshit. Sorry about the swearing there, but, but this is the point of the story. He said, and he's he's literally said that and then said, and I bet you that more of you are upset that I said that word than about what I just said about the children starving to death. And that's exactly right. Like we get so concerned about sort of the way something is being said um, and we try to to cover that up and hide it. Um, We can't, I mean, golly, uh, translating Ezekiel for real, we would end up with a book with some big passages that would would kind of burn your ears, right? Like Ezekiel was a very coarse person and he was telling people not things they wanted to hear. <laughs> um, but we get so concerned about those words and we're not really paying attention to what is being said. I guarantee you, if I were able to read a, a, a better translation, a more accurate translation of Ezekiel in church with those swear words, Half the congregation would be incredibly offended by the, the, the swear words themselves and might walk out or I'd get some strongly worded email. And the other half would be like, oh God, like he really means this. And like, in other words, it, like so much of the prophets are about um, trying to say, wake up. Like they're, they're, they're smacking us about the head and shoulders and saying, look at the world around you. You're asleep. And one of the ways they do that is with this really harsh, weird language um, and their behavior. And, and it's, I get it. Like, I, of course, there are, are things that we, like, to me, those sort of typical swear words are not an issue. And actually, if, if your listeners go and buy the books and read them, uh, you'll find that I do swear in the books. Um, so be prepared for that. <laughs> Don't be surprised. Um but but also uh, to me those are not bad words if that makes sense like I for me someone saying the n word is horrible um, when I hear someone like even my kids or whatever saying oh I hate this person like maybe that's not quite as strong but like the word hate to me is a bad word right like there, there's 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 other words it's like what are you doing with your language does that make sense. Um, yeah, you're asking the questions of are we opening something up to bring people in or are yeah. we using language to shame? Yes. And exactly. that word is a horrifically shaming word. And telling exactly somebody right. that them puts them in a shame storm inside to quote Brene Brown or misquote her, but paraphrase. Yeah. Um, and and so and that's an overriding theme of the book is yeah. um, you talk about nakedness as being actually vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And when people mm-hmm. are vulnerable, they are seen. And if they are seen, they're at risk of how the seer sees them. Yep. And, and you talk quite a bit about, uh, about uh, Hagar. Is that how you pronounce yep. it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the great risk she's constantly in as a slave, um, because it's all about how her masters see her and how they see her usefulness. And she's mm-hmm. constantly vulnerable in, in the yeah. chapter that you wrote yeah. about her. Um, and Sarah does get to a place of jealousy 
Uh, yeah. Sarah is the, the name of the person who, who owns her. And she gets to this place of jealousy that she allows to become hatred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's destructive and devastating for not only Hagar, but, but, but mm-hmm. her child. Right. And, and I think these are the things that you're constantly grappling with throughout your book which is what is a bad word? Is it a yeah. bad word if it, if it makes us go to our deepest humanity mm-hmm. or is it a bad mm-hmm. word if it denies someone's right. deepest humanity? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And again, I, I keep bringing this back to like what's going on right now. Um, I've been teaching some anti-racism classes at my church uh, and working on some of that with, with my students as well. And I should say I, as a white woman, I'm, very much still arriving, still waking up. I, I am not in a perfectly anti-racist place and I never will be. Um, but I, but I want to share the work that I've, I've done, the, the things that I've learned with other people. So that's what we were in these classes. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me how fragile we white people are around the word racist. Like we don't even have to say the word for someone to feel like it's being used against them and and for them to to be sad and hurt and push back or run away. I mean, there's lots of different ways that we can exhibit that fragility. Um, and and it makes me really sad because like we're reacting to the word and not to what it means. You know, it's it's yes, I am a white person, therefore I am racist because I grew up in a racist society. Now, this is not a podcast about. Uh, you know, Robin D'Angelo's book or Ibrahim Kendi's book or anybody like that. But, but I will say like the language that we use, like every word we use carries so much freight. Um, and, and it's, it's not just the freight that it carries. It is, as, as we're saying, how are you using it? How are you hearing it even? Right. So like if, if, if I'm talking about that, we live in a racist society, it's the water that we swim in. Do you hear me say you are a bad person? I'm not saying that, but you may hear it that way, right? And so some of this, again, some of this language in scripture, when we hear these scary swear words or whatever, or or we hear, um, you know, John the Baptist say we're a brood of vipers. Like what what does that mean? How does how does that strike you? And again, going back to the beginning of our conversation, can we be curious about it? instead of running away, um, can, can we examine that feeling that comes up? Um, when, when you have that moment, as I hope every Christian does eventually, when we hear Jesus say something about the Pharisees or the people in power, and we don't immediately think, oh, those other people are so bad. And we have the moment of going, oh, oh, I, I might be the Pharisees here and not the widow or the poor person or whatever it is that he's casting as the hero. Oh, (laughs) instead of running away from that or feeling angry, what if we examine that and go, yeah, maybe, maybe I am complicit. Maybe I am part of this. Let me look at that. Um, Christina, I've said this on to so many people so many times, and I'll say this to you and, and to your listeners right now. I don't have a strong opinion about people reading my books and agreeing with me. I don't need you to agree with me. My entire goal in writing these things 
is just for people to to read them and, and, and to have a moment of, huh, I hadn't thought about that before. Right? Like not, not necessarily agreeing, just there's another way to look at this. And and perhaps perhaps one does that and goes, no, I think I think the way, where I am is good, or maybe I'll go to some third place. They don't have to necessarily agree with what I'm saying, but that kind of moment of opening up a little bit to the vastness of the world. That that is my goal personally, but I also feel like that's in so many ways that's the goal of scripture. Look at this differently. Look at the people around you differently. See them as human beings who have their own story, you know? And that's really been a theme since you were a little kid. It seems like because in the opening of the book, you say that by the time you got to junior high, you were telling everybody about the books you read and the thoughts you had, and you quote them as saying, no one cares. Um, (laughs) And your approach now that it's your books that that you're talking about right. and your <laughs> that, that you're talking about um you don't want someone to say no one cares you want someone to to have some sort of opinion or have some sort of um thought process of their own mm-hmm, uh, and that's mm-hmm. that curiosity that you're talking about and one of the chapters that really sparked my curiosity where i um hopefully responded in the, the way of your ideal reader <laughs> close enough was um, your chapter about Mary, the mother of God, and you yeah. said you see her story as the prophetic call. Yeah. And that's when I said, wait, I've never, never heard it described that way. Yeah. So will you please tell us what you mean by that, the yes. prophetic call for Mary? Yes. Yes. So um, one of the ways uh, that you can read scripture uh, is a, a thing called form criticism, that is, um, as, as you might imagine, if you look at all the, the various books of the Bible, there's lots of different forms of writing. Uh, the Psalms, of course, are songs. There's uh, histories, though they're not necessarily history books, but they're kind of written like histories. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's goofy stories in there. Um, there are, there's wisdom literature. Uh, there's, just, there's all kinds of different like, um, kinds of writing in, in the whole book. But then even within the books, there's different forms that you will see. Now, a lot of that, you kind of need to I did study that, but uh, it's been a long time. Uh, but like there, there's forms of poetry within the within the Psalms. That it's not just one kind of, of poetry, if that makes sense. So anyway, there's this idea called form criticism where um, you can look at um, how something is written, the structure of a passage, and you can compare that structure to other bits of scripture that have similar structure. Uh, isn't it interesting that these are these are similar? Uh, you know, why would this, this later author choose to write this in this fashion? What are they trying to get across by using this form? Um, so the the story of the Annunciation to Mary uh, is definitely in the form of Annunciation. Other other women in Scripture have uh, had an angelic visitor who pronounced upon them they were going to have a miraculous child. Uh, and so it it very much is in the Annunciation form. But it's also almost closer to the form of God calling a prophet. Uh, when you look at Gideon or Isaiah or some of those other guys, there, there is a form that sort of their uh, call follows. And Mary's call to 
bear the word of God, Jesus, to the world fits it almost perfectly. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, relatedly, she then goes into the Magnificat and sings this song that sounds remarkably like uh, a prophetic speech from the Hebrew prophets. So I had this kind of moment when I was in seminary. I, I noticed this aloud to my professor and we ended up writing a paper together about it. Um, but uh, I, I love this idea and it, and it, it, it aligns with my sense that that women had more to say than certainly the interpretation of scripture has allowed for, but sometimes scripture itself. There, there are definitely stories where the, the women's stories are kind of in the lines between things, but um, there's so much more going on here. It's not just, oh, Mary, you know, wears blue and is meek and mild and, you know, humbly accepts. Like, I, I think I said this in the chapter, God is about... Uh, enthusiastic consent, and Mary. Can yeah, you say that in the chapter? That. Yes, yeah. She she consents to this. It's not just a thing that happens to her, and she's like, all right, whatever. Like it's it's. She asks some questions, and then she says, "Let it be with me." That is her yes. Which amuses me to think how many other women. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we don't have this scripturally, but how many other women did the angel go to who were like, ah? I don't want this. Uh, and and that, you know, again, this is sort of a, a fanciful kind of moment, but but that God said, okay, like, I'm not going to force this on you. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Mary, Mary is very much a prophet to me. She is, she is speaking hard truths in her Magnificat. And, um, and I think that, that just literally in raising Jesus the way she did, um, helped him become the man that he was. And so do you think the prophetic call for Mary is why Joseph kind of fades away, uh, throughout the the narrative of Jesus's upbringing and certainly, uh, his death and, and Mary's, Mary's story, her through line stays, um, you know, she sort of disappears, but then she pops back up. And there's a great contrast between how uh, Mary receives the prophetic call and how Joseph is uh, responds when he's told about the situation. Um, as I mentioned to listeners, you give a section in the back where we can do our homework and mm. read all the passages for ourselves. And so when, when Joseph finds out, his A-game decision is, I'm going to marry her and then I'm going to quietly divorce her. And yeah. then this angel comes to him and says, no, Joe, no. <laughs> um, and then he kind of really isn't a, a key player in the story. And so right. is that part of your shaping of seeing that, you know, Mary wasn't just this um, way we're, t- we're, we're told again and again in the sermons, but she actually is elevated both in the way it's written and the way it's continued to be written yeah. and in her answering of the call and the great contrast between how she answers it and how Joseph does that she's actually written about in the manner of the prophets. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Uh, I'm, I'm letting my brain kind of wander through other women who've had this uh, prophetic or maybe not necessarily prophetic, but the Annunciation. Like I, I just finished my chapter on Hannah um, from from First Samuel, Samuel's mom, 
Uh, and and if you were to read the Song of Hannah, which is in, in the second chapter of that book, uh, it's very similar. You would, you would see a lot of similarities to the Magnificat. Um, her experience is, is, she doesn't even really quite have an enunciation. Um, she is, she is barren and then she prays and, and is sort of miraculously pregnant. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't quite fit. Uh, but in that story, her husband also is a player there at the beginning. Uh, and he's actually one of the best examples of a husband in scripture. He really seems to, to care about her personhood and her humanity, uh, where others just don't name it at all. But, uh, and he also, he also kind of disappears. Uh, he's there kind of right at the beginning and then he's, then he's gone. I guess she does too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. That, that Joseph, um, as, as important as he might be, does kind of disappear. Um, and while this book is about women in the Bible, I do think that's a shame. I think he's, Really, he also had something to do with how the man Jesus turned out, you know? Uh, it wasn't just Mary. I don't know. I'm, I'm just going to think, I'm going to let that sit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit with that for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I didn't mean to play stump the priest. <laughs> no, no, I don't, I don't feel stumped. It's, it's kind of a, I, I want to examine that a little bit. I don't, I don't have all the answers as you might expect. <laughs> well, and that's something that you you say in the book. You don't want to get to a place where you feel like you have yeah. all the answers. You want to stay in curiosity. You want to stay in wondering. You want to even revisit stories that you've written about here and and add more nuances and layers. Yes. You want to stay in curiosity and wonder. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, I, maybe this is helpful to you. Um, after I turned in a chapter for this current book, Brave, uh, I had a moment where I realized, oh no. I already wrote about this person <laughs> in Fierce. <laughs> so uh, the the Syrophoenician woman, uh, the Canaanite woman, I think I refer to her as the woman on the road uh, in Fierce. I, she's also in a chapter in Brave, <laughs> which was not intentional. I just clearly care about her a lot and had other things to say about her. Um, and that's exactly what my editor said when I when I pointed that out. I was like, oh, no, this is not good. Uh, and she said, no, I think, I think that's good. I think you can, you can speak to your evolving thought about these people. And I really hope that people do have evolving thought about the women in scripture, but all of scripture, that it's, it's not just, it's not, it doesn't just get released from the mouth of God and then nothing ever changes about it, you know? Um, and you, you say in the book, we're meant to grapple with it. This is difficult stuff. This is the heart yeah. of what makes people people and why people do what they do and yeah. how humanity gets where it gets. Exactly and that's right. not really a one and done reading like, oh, I got it. Right. It, it, it's something that you, that you go back to. And you also talk about how before this was a book, you were at a Bible study and you told the group yeah. how this is a direct quote from, from what you said. Scripture is a lot more disgusting and sexy than we tend to think. And your friend turned to you and said, you should write a book about that. And you said to him, meh. <laughs> yep. And now you're 
revisiting in your in your new book, uh, Brave, which will be out soon, things yeah. that you talked about in, in Fear. So um, maybe yeah. you'll send your friend a, a free copy. Um, oh, I will. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot more disgusting and sexy than even you thought. Yeah. Um, and so this is not a good segue, but uh, one of the other people I was hoping that we could talk about was was Mary Magdalene. Yes. You have a chapter about her, and she mm-hmm. is one of the most, uh, to me, intriguing uh, people in the Bible and possibly one of the most mythologized. And mm. the competing views about her are something yeah. that you grapple with in her chapter. And yeah. can you tell us um, what, what you... Uh, what you wanted us, well, not what you wanted us to know about Mary Magdalene, because you yeah. want us to go in and think about it, but what you were thinking about yeah. and what you were considering about the complexity of her story, yeah. how much we don't know, but maybe there's more that we know that we've just, like you've said before, have skated over. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, it's funny. We, we know more about her than we think we do. Like if, if I were to ask, well, you've read the book now, so you would be cheating, but uh, if I were to ask just a, a generic, generic person, whoever the generic person is, Jane Doe, uh, what she knows about Mary Magdalene, she's probably going to say, well, she's a former prostitute and, uh, and then followed Jesus. And then you, you might, you might also say, wasn't she married to Jesus? Because, you know, after the Vichy Code came out, everybody kind of took that as, well, this is what really happened. It's fiction. Anyway, um, like we, we don't, we have some sort of cultural assumptions about her, which are not in scripture. Um, so like, that was a big thing that was important to me to say is that um, she's not a prostitute. Um, she is sort of conflated with uh, this nameless person. Uh, I, I, I think once the, the woman is given the name Mary, but Mary is such a common name. All of these Marys are named after Miriam, Moses's sister, who was brilliant and who I write about in Brave. Um, she's amazing. And so lots of people were named after her. Uh, which is confusing <laughs> in in the New Testament. Like there's Mary and Mary and then the other Mary. And you're like, who are we talking about here? Um, Mary Magdalene is not the woman who comes in, who is the, the quote, woman of ill repute, who comes in and washes Jesus' feet uh, or pours oil on him. Um, that is, if it's someone, it's Mary of Bethany. Um, but even then, it's probably a different Mary. Um, it's not Mary Magdalene. Now, I also like I think so. I think it's important to name that um, that that men who are who were translating this and and sharing these stories later felt it was important to make her a woman of ill repute um, because otherwise, what we have about her is that Jesus healed her and that she and Joanna and some other women were women of means. They had money and they supported Jesus and his disciples. They were the, his patrons. Um, and she's the only person who is present at every, uh, initial resurrection appearance in the garden. She's the one who is always there. And we talk, I think I said this in the, in the chapter, we talk about her as the apostle to the apostles, which is lovely, but like, no, she's actually an apostle. We don't have to put to the apostles. She's the first person to see him alive and tell people that makes her an apostle. She needs to be on the same level with Peter and James and John and all those guys. Um, but for some reason, we don't think of her that way. We say, oh, who were the disciples? Who were the apostles? It was these 12 dudes. Also Mary and Joanna and some other people. And it, it literally, actually, you can probably tell this out of my voice. 
like I'm angry about it. I'm angry that they don't get the recognition that they deserve. They were there. They believed before the guys did. Um, and I think that's important. It doesn't mean that women are better than men. I think there are some people who assume that feminism is about making women more important than men. No, I'm just saying that women's stories haven't been important. Let's raise them up to the level of the men's stories. Similarly, when we say Black Lives Matter, right? It's not Black Lives Matter more than white lives. It's Black Lives Matter too. Let's bring them up to the same level. Let's, let's read them and recite them and tell them and love them as much. Um, and so Mary Magdalene is is important because she cared about this guy, this, this man, this God, Jesus, enough that she was willing to put her resources, she was willing to sacrifice her time and her money for this man and his message and what he was doing in the world. Um, it's not, it's not shameful that she might have been a prostitute. I, that's something else I say in there. Like, it's not, I'm not trying to, to retell this story in such a way, because I just can't imagine her being a prostitute. But the possibility that someone, whatever their, and I'm not necessarily, I wouldn't even say that prostitution is a sin. That's perhaps another conversation, but um, the story of sort of um, transforming, of repenting from whatever our sin is and experiencing new life is beautiful and powerful. And I think that's a story that we really ought to be telling, but it's not her story. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's things that you lay out in that chapter. Um, and as, as a, as a writer myself, I, part of me wondered, because as you say, there were so many Marys, there were, yeah. there were so many different women who were actually part of this story, but as you point out, are, are just sort of referred to as, and the other women mm-hmm. or certain women, certain or, women. <laughs> or, or the women who were there too. Um, and as a, in writing a story, there's only a certain number of characters that, yeah. um, you know, an audience is supposed to, thought to be able to keep track of it. Um, yeah. And so there's a, often a composite character. Uh-huh. Where we have five Marys. One of them was a prostitute. One of them had some money. Yeah. One of them only showed up three times. We'll just roll them into <laughs> one person. Right. And we'll, we'll, you know, make it notable. So yeah. now she's Mary Magdalene, the the prostitute. And it's not that you, you, you say that that's a device that they use, but it did roll through my mind. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's how they got there. Yeah. That when they're, they're writing the scripture and they have all these people and their guys writing it. So they, well, we ought to make sure, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't rolled into one person. They got to stay for, now we've got right. 12 women also. That's yeah. too many. Right. 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 Let's come up with two who are notable, his mom and the prostitute that works. Right. right. But what's, what's so frustrating about that though, is, is that that sort of concept, I mean, it, you might you might be able to say that some of that happened in scripture itself, but like the idea that she is the prostitute literally just isn't in scripture. That's not her story. Um, right. it's, it's it's very clear that when the woman of ill repute is named, it's not Mary Magdalene. Um, so then that, that's sort of a question of interpretation because that story is in there multiple times. Does that mean that it's this other person who was named in all those stories every time it's named? Is that still the same person? Presumably it is. Therefore, it's not. Like my point is that that it was it was later. It was a few hundred years later when uh, I think it was a pope. Even I don't remember exactly who it was who said. Now this this is now the interpretation of this. Mary 
Magdalene was a prophet when, or was a prophet, well, maybe she was too. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Uh, and when it says uh, seven demons came out of her, that Jesus healed her of those seven demons, that was her sexual sin. Um, because of course, like this, this is the other sort of problem with this, uh, which I'm sure you are familiar with uh, in your readings, Christina, is that that when women show up in scripture, so often either their story is about sex or there's some assumption about sex or sexual sin related to them. Um, like, you know, when, when, when someone is uh, infertile, when a couple can't have a baby, it's always that the woman is barren. It never has anything to do with whether the man is able to produce viable seed. Um, and, uh, whenever, you know, Bathsheba, like her whole experience in that story is being the object of desire from the King. It's, it's like, it's like whenever a woman shows up, the assumption is that she must be a sex object of some kind, whether because you want to have sex with her or because she can be a mom, uh, and like produce babies, um, or that she's unattractive somehow. Um, and I, I don't have a story necessarily to back that up. I'm, I'm thinking about sort of stories in popular culture or whatever. Like if you th- this, this may seem like a little bit of a reach, but I, I was just reading a little article about um, armor that you see women wear in films um, and, and how often that armor, you know, kind of has what we call a boob window or whatever, or like it's shaped in such a way that it, it emphasizes the woman's curves. Um, and it's like, that doesn't seem like that would be helpful armor. <laughs> Wouldn't you want armor like Phasma in Star Wars that covers you completely? <laughs> Wouldn't that be more useful to you? No, because you need to be a sex object. Uh, and then somehow those, you know, some men who are watching it would go, oh, well, like Phasma is not very attractive because I can't see that she's a woman in there. Like, it's not for you. <laughs> Her story is more than just whether she is available to you, you know? Um, and, I, and I think that's something that really frustrates me is, is that Mary Magdalene somehow her story has to be about her sexual availability or her former sexual availability, as opposed to she has a mind and an interior life with and a generosity and a generosity. Right. And like, she saw this Jesus guy and it's not like, fine. Some people like to think that maybe they were married. Okay, great. That doesn't, whatever. I like to think of her as someone who fell in love with his mind who fell in love with his soul, this man who was coming to the poorest of the poor, who was speaking truth to people who were crushed under the heel of Rome. And she's like, hell yeah, let's get some more of this out there. Like, I see this too. I'm so glad that you see it. How can I support you? How can I make this happen? Um, and, and like, that's, that's what the story is. That's what Jesus is doing is trying to get people to open their eyes and see those things. It's not about whether she's available, you know? And the, the confusion with what to do with sexuality yeah. and the danger of sexuality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why, why are women dangerous? Why, why are our bodies dangerous? That is consistent throughout so much of scripture. There's so many rules about what women can do with their bodies, what men can do with their bodies. And, women's well, also, monthly menstruation and it's like it's not dangerous 
There's also some hints in Tamar's chapter when, yeah. you know, her first two husbands die rather quickly yep. that, that there's something a bit dangerous about her sexuality. Mm-hmm. And then she, in some ways, turns that narrative on its head and says, well, okay, I can, I can do something dangerous with this. Right. Um, when she tricks her father-in-law to, yeah. to, as a, as a important sort of political strategy to rebuild her life yeah. because she's been basically exiled. That's right. Um, but, but getting back to, to uh, Mary Magdalene for a moment and yeah. um, how um, her sexuality is actually neither here nor there mm. in, in, her, in her role in, in Jesus's life, um, which is a beautiful unpacking that you do in the chapter and allow us to see her own through line, which was her generosity um, and her intellect that she was able to understand and embrace and Jesus's message, which was completely subversive and out there. Yeah. It, it took some time to understand what this guy was, was saying he was going to do. And yet she was able to uh, be a strong intellectual and financial supporter of his. And one of the points that, that you brought up a few moments ago um, is her tremendous loyalty, which is what led her to be actually the first apostle. Yeah. It was her loyalty to him that had her there. Yeah. To be the first one to see him when he was raised from the dead. And we see her profound loyalty in her grief that yeah. it is this person that she knew that she was so dedicated to. And yet we we go through sort of in real time with her grappling with with trying to to make sense of who he is. You know, is, is he the gardener? Is who is he? Mm-hmm. Um and as anyone who's experienced grief or shock or trauma, we can understand how much she's in that moment struggling to to grapple with what's before her. She doesn't walk yeah. away and say, oh, that was the gardener. I'm not going to talk to him. We <laughs> see her staying in it, working in real time through this. Yes. And because of that, because of her loyalty to Jesus, because of her love and grief, she's actually able to stay in that moment to be the first apostle, yes. to not be the person who's like, I don't know who that is. And I, I got stuff, you know, reasons to leave it, to walk away. Preach. Um, <laughs> and I, well, uh, it was profound to me because how many times have I heard, well, you don't know me, but how many times <laughs> I've heard that story and I didn't connect that. I connected yeah. in her grief and her love and her loyalty, but I never until I read your book understood that that made her the first apostle. Yeah. 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 And it, I mean, it's, it's partly because like, that's just not how we preach those stories, you know, uh, for, for whatever reason, you know, there, there are, it's, it's not just stories about women. There, there are sort of ways that we understand stories in scripture and, and it takes a bit of a jolt to kind of knock us into, Oh, there's another way to read this. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to be that jolt. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I think it, it comes back to your point of, um, you know, what you're saying about feminism. It's not to take men's seat at the table or to make the table smaller and say, you right, know, it only fits right. women now. Um, it's to add yeah, to the table until it's truly full. And when we get the female perspective on the divine, the female perspective on scripture, alongside I'm sure many of the books you read in seminary were written by men and many of the classes you attended were taught by men and many of the people sitting beside you in class were male or male identifying. And it's a bringing together of all those perspectives. Um, 
that that is what feminism is and what a feminist interpretation of the women uh, in the Bible is yes. in your in your book. Yes. Yes. And there's no. so much more in it. I would love to talk to you about. But we're, <laughs> running, we're running out of time, yes. so um, if we could uh, take the last few minutes to uh, hear about what projects you're working on now. Yeah, sure. Um, so after I wrote Fierce, uh, I took a different tack and wrote a book called How to Human, um, which is um, sort of a biography of the Canvas ministry I serve, but more, I, I really kind of hate the term self-help, but it's a little bit of a self-help book. It's sort of this sort of sense of um, how can we transform ourselves uh, using some of the, the, the goofily phrased wisdom uh, that I and my students have, have worked on together over the last decade. Uh, things like um, say the thing, ask for what you need, um, that kind of thing. And, and sort of um, exploring essentially that this idea of how to be more curious about ourselves and about other people uh, on the ground. But so that, that came out a couple of years ago um, from the same publisher. But right now uh, I am literally in the middle of writing a follow-up to Fierce uh, that I've kind of referenced a couple of times called Brave. Uh, and it has a similar uh, long subtitle that I have not yet memorized, so I can't yet say it to you yet, but uh, it's called Brave. And it's, it's more of the women in the, in the Bible whose stories we've kind of uh, swept under the rug of that. Um, I will say this one is much more of a struggle. Uh, I was saying this before we started recording, uh, when I wrote Fierce, I wrote about the women I wanted to write about and the stories that I cared about really deeply. And uh, now I'm writing a second one. I'm like, oh, I don't know, who do I write about now? <laughs> who else is there? There are a bunch more. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of working my way through that. And I've, I've fallen in love with some new people. Um, who knew that the Queen of Sheba was so fascinating? I love her. Um, she's my new favorite. Uh, so that's that I'm in the process of writing and uh, probably today or tomorrow the the new cover will go up on my my author Instagram page uh, and it's now pre-orderable on Amazon should you want to give Jeff Bezos more money um, it'll be pre-orderable on other websites soon as well as just went up on Amazon today um, so yeah, it's it's exciting. Um, I'm I'm really thrilled to to kind of put more of these stories out there. Um, it's just it's sometimes a struggle to figure out what the what the hook is. What is it that that needs to be told into these stories this time? You know. Uh, so yeah, look for that in early 2021, maybe April. I don't remember the exact release date. Uh, I'm sure it's on the Amazon listing. <laughs> Well, when it is out, I hope you will come back and talk to us about that. I, I know. To. I will, great. I know I will be looking forward to that. Yeah. Alice Connor, thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us about Fierce, women of the Bible and their stories of violence, mercy, bravery, wisdom, sex, and salvation. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again. <laughs>